Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, thank you to everybody, not just Temple Worship, uh, for that season of worship. We all have a responsibility to worship God. Brian, what's up, dude? Man, it's good to see you. I have a bunch of, a bunch of my Lisa Westers are here today. Yeah, showing out. Um, but I, I'm grateful for that, that season of worship that we had together. Now, now let's not let that slip away from us. And let's uh, recognize that, that, uh, it is, it is, that was a season of anticipation uh, because God's word is going gonna, is gonna to go forward now. And we need to hear from him. Okay, uh, We are in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're starting a new chapter. And uh, in Acts chapter 10, man, we, there was a lot going on there. Okay, we spent quite a bit of time in Acts chapter 10, and just by way of recap, let's remember what it is that we studied there. There was, a, there was a Peter, okay, um, who was uh, praying, right? And there was Cornelius who was praying, two men praying in two different places, okay, uh, some 30 miles apart from one another. Now, Cornelius was a Roman centurion who uh, practiced... Uh, a Jewish faith. Now, he was not uh, 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 a proper part. He was of the uncircumcised. He was not a proper part of temple worship, but he practiced the Jewish faith system. Okay? And so here's a man who is questioning his faith. He's questioning his understanding of God. He's seeking and he's praying to God for answers. Okay? Elsewhere, we find, uh, we find Peter praying. Um, he has just come from Samaria, where uh, he's witnessed these, these Samaritans, these people that the Jews never ex- uh, expected would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. He watches them begin to receive the gospel, and, these, and as a Jewish believer, Peter's kind of standing amazed, and he's reassessing uh, his understanding of how the gospel is going to move forward uh, in the future. And so they're both praying. Now Cornelius has an angel come to him. And reveal that he's supposed to send for Peter. And so he sends a few of his servants to go find Peter. And about the same time that those servants show up to where Peter's at, Peter is seeing a vision of God that gives him permission to go to the Gentiles in an entirely new way. And the vision was essentially uh, God's permission to eat the way the Gentiles eat, to live the way the Gentiles live. Because the gospel is open. And that God doesn't see in terms of those arbitrary uh, religious perspectives anymore. Okay, uh, But God is opening up his gospel to all people that all people might become his children through Jesus Christ. Do you understand? And so about that time, uh, these men knock on his door. Now, uh, what we know from the story as it progresses is that Peter goes with those servants to preach the gospel uh, to... Uh, to Cornelius and these other, other Grecians, and they receive it. Now, what's important for us to understand is the significance of what's going on here. There's a serious paradigm shift taking place in our, in our narrative uh, of Acts. Okay? There's a paradigm shift that's taking place. This is what's happening. God was closing the door on a Jewish, Christian-centered missions plan. Okay, now let me slow down for those of you who are, who are just now coming in. Maybe this is your first week in Acts. It's like, wait a second, what are you talking about? 
Okay, the nation of Israel had always been God's special people. For thousands of years, these people were set apart as God's unique people. And Jesus Christ was born of the Jewish people. The Messiah of the world was born of the Jewish people. And His death, burial, and resurrection was intended to draw the nation of Israel back into a place of blessing and reception of who He is. And He wanted, His intention was to use the nation of Israel to reach the nations. That was His plan from the beginning. And it was His plan at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of Acts. Now here, here's the major difference though. Um, what we see is that we see the Jews actually refusing Jesus Christ. And that's marked by their stoning of Stephen. And it's at that moment that everything within the narrative begins to change. And the focus becomes less on a physical kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and more on a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is where God begins to shut the door to the Jewish people and open the door to the nations abroad. Are you hanging with me? So listen to me. God was closing the door on a Jewish Christian-centered mission. Now, it wasn't that the Jews could no longer receive the gospel. It's but they needed, they needed to receive it under the terms by which the Gentile nations would be receiving it too. That is, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You understand? Okay, so as that door is shutting, simultaneously, God is opening a door to a gospel message that would reach the whole world, a gospel message without the trappings of the Levitical laws. Okay? Yeah? Okay. So, when Peter and Cornelius meet, Peter preaches a message uh, that begins by declaring the fact, that, for the very first time, that the Christian program would include the Jews, that the Jews and Gentiles were spiritually equal. And when Cornelius meets Peter, his heart and mind are ready and he, as well as the other Grecians that are gathered together, they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're saved. And then they're baptized. Okay, now listen. The way that our story picks up here, all right, is that after this monumental thing that happens, right, this group of Gentiles accept Jesus Christ, Gentiles and Jews are equal in God's eyes, this, this, this monumental thing, Peter finds himself in a position where he needs to go back to Jerusalem and explain this to the other Jews. Okay? Uh, no easy task. Okay, no easy task. The title of our message today uh, is going to be the model church. Okay, but before we get to the model church, before we begin talking about Antioch, we've got to talk about this story where Peter has to go and explain what went down, okay, in Caesarea. He's got to explain that, and that's not easy to do. Has anybody ever um, been in a position like, I don't know what you were like in high school? But were you, did you ever find yourself in a position where the, the principal called home? Yeah? Oh, this is a room full of goody two-shoes, huh? <laughs> I had the principal call home a few times. You know what I mean? You feeling that, Lucas? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> now, the thing about the principal calling home, okay, is that you still had fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh hour to get through. <laughs> Where you were getting that, like, anxious sweat. You know what I'm talking about? You can't hear anything the teachers are saying. 
right? You're learning nothing the rest of the day. All you're thinking about is what it's going to be like when you get home and you've got to explain yourself. Okay? I have a feeling that's what Peter felt on that long walk home. Right? I, I just imagine like the Charlie Brown song playing, right, in the background, and he's just walking as slow as possible back to Jerusalem, trying to figure out what, how he's going to explain himself. Now, here, here's the thing that Peter had on his side, is that this was no manifestation of men. This was a manifestation of God. And no matter how the Jews would receive this testimony and this story, he knew what God had done. Yeah? So here we find Peter in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Okay? So word had, word had already made its way back. Okay? They already knew what was going on before Peter even got there. They heard about the Gentiles and that they'd received the word. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, that they, were the circ- uh, that, they that were of the circumcision, in other words, Jewish believers, contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into the men uncircumcised and didst eat with them? So these were the early Jewish Christian legalists. Okay, this is our first encounter with legalism in the, in the, in the New Testament church. See, they, they didn't like the, uh, the idea of Peter, a leader in the Jewish church, defiling himself at the Gentile shrimp boil. You know what I'm saying? Okay? They didn't like the idea that Peter was chilling on the patio eating pork sandwiches. You ever had a pork sandwich? Okay. Anybody been to Kitty's Cafe? Brian, that's your hood. Where are you at, Brian? Yeah, Kitty's Cafe. Get you a pork sandwich. Okay. Now listen, they didn't like the idea of Peter having eaten with the Gentiles, and they didn't like that he had fellowship with them in the way that they were hearing about. They contended with him or disputed with him. And they, they, they come to him and they say, what do you have to say for yourself? Now notice, notice this. You can always spot a legalist because they are always obsessed with the small stuff. You can always spot a legalist. Now, when I say legalist, what I'm talking about is a person who has chosen to use Scripture, okay, generally peripheral issues, and make them a center of focus so that they isolate other people and and ultimately keep them from the gospel. You can always spot a legalist because they are always obsessed with the small stuff. Okay, look at verse 1. It says, They heard that the Gentiles received the word of God. They heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Something worth celebrating, I would say. And yet, what they wanted to talk about is what Peter ate while he was in Caesarea. Hey, we heard what you were eating. 
Now what we should learn from this is that a mature Christian emphasizes God's words over their own cultural predispositions. A mature Christian emphasizes God's words over their own cultural predispositions. All of us have them. All of us have cultural predispositions. All of us come from families and perspectives and ethnicities and and experiences that define and form who we are. And when we put those things in front of what God is doing, then guess what? You're a legalist. When your musical preference or your preference about dress or your preference on, on whatever it is, whatever that thing may be, when you put that above and in front of what God is doing, guess what? You're a legalist. Even, no matter how progressive you think you are, when you say it's your way or the highway, you're getting in the way of God. Now Peter knew what had happened in his encounter with the Gentiles. And so he confidently spoke. He confidently responded. Now, I, I want to, real quick, I want to give the Jewish believers here a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. Okay? Doctrinally, we should give them the benefit of the doubt here a little bit. See, they didn't have the benefit of a completed Word of God. They didn't have the benefit of an understanding of dispensations. They didn't have the benefit of having experienced what Peter had experienced. They didn't completely understand yet what God was doing. Okay? And they were dragging their feet a bit. Okay? They were dragging their feet a bit. All right? So when we read this, we ought to feel just a little bit sorry for them because they weren't fully aware yet. And this is their opportunity to learn. So let's listen to Peter's response. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descended as it had been a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me, upon the which... When I had fastened my eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing uh, nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. And this was done three times. Now, now, hold on a second. This, we talked about this. This is the third time we've heard this story now. We've heard this story in Scripture three times now. And so we ought to know it very well. And it's something that we have to understand. That what God calls clean, we shouldn't call unclean. We ought not to despise our brethren. Okay? We ought not to despise those that God loves. We learned about this in the last service. The significance of loving people. We've got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn how to love the things that God loves and the people that God loves. We have to learn how to do that. And so he's telling them this story. And all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, uh, was, sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied, accompanied me, and we entered into that man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send me to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell uh, tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the, of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what was I that I could withstand God? I want to point out a couple things here that are really significant doctrinally. First of all, notice that when Peter rehearsed this story, and he's talking about the Gentiles speaking in tongues, that he tells the story of Acts chapter 2. He doesn't tell any other story. In other words, he's pointing to the fact that this is an uncommon thing, isn't he? He's not talking about, oh, remember, you know, we've been speaking in tongues, and it happened like three weeks ago, and he doesn't tell that story. He says, like in the beginning, when that sign came to us, that the Holy Spirit now indwelled his people. You catch that? I think that's an important way that he's telling that, that story. He's pointing to the fact that the, the tongues are a sign gift that the Holy Spirit has now entered into a people group and now, now God indwells them. Make sense? But he's proving the, to them, and, and I want to I I point to you that Peter presents four evidences that God was doing a work in the Gentiles. Four evidences. All right? Am I... Are you still with me? Four evidences. The first evidence is that Peter saw a vision of God. In verse 5 he says, I saw a vision. In verse 9 he says that the vision was, was declared, what God hath cleansed, that that call uh, not that common, right? That's, that's what the vision declared to him, right? And so the first thing is that he saw a vision. And as a prophet, Peter was a prophet. He was an apostle and a prophet. Okay, they would recognize the authority of, of that evidence. Yeah? So that's evidence number one. Evidence number two, the witness of the Spirit in verse 12. Verse 12 says, And the Spirit bade me go with them. So they would have recognized from that evidence that the Spirit of God Himself was calling Peter to go into this work and to, to, to declare the gospel. That was an evidence to them. The third would have been the witness of men. The three men that came and knocked on his door from Caesarea as well as the six men that came with him that were of the Jewish believers that came with him and went with him to declare the gospel, who saw the Holy Spirit descend onto those Gentiles, fall from heaven on them. They would have seen that. So there would have been witnesses of men. And the fourth would have been the witness of the word. Verse 16, when Peter is making his defense, he says, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now, those are pretty strong and compelling evidences of what God is doing, correct? And for the average person, you might see those evidences. The average Jewish believer, you might see those evidences and say to yourself, well, that's compelling. That's compelling. I see that. I see what you're saying. Now, I want to point out to you that I believe that more important than those four evidences was one very significant, significant point. After all of this very legitimate and convincing evidence the Jews could have still chosen to refuse Peter. They could have done that. As compelling as his presentation was, these men were men who stood offended. Did you not hear them? They were offended. We know you were eating those pork sandwiches. <laughs> now, by the way, a pork tenderloin sandwich ought to have sh shredded lettuce, okay, Mayonnaise, and I don't even like mayonnaise, but on a pork tenderloin. And then some form of spicy sauce. I don't, I don't care what it is. It could, be, it could be Louisiana hot sauce. 
okay? Um, at, at, at Kitty's Cafe, they have their own specialty sauce that they put on the pork tenderloin sandwich. I'm just, I'm just telling you. Now, they, they could have retained their offense, couldn't they? They could have, they could have, okay, we hear your evidences. But we know what God told us in the Levitical law, and what you're saying contradicts what God told us. They could have done that, but I want to say something. They didn't. They didn't disagree with Peter. They didn't throw him out of their sight. I want to suggest to you that it was his testimony that necessitated a proper response. They knew Peter. They knew his orthodoxy. They knew that God had used him. They knew of his faithfulness. So they knew that they could trust his testimony. Now here's my question for you, believer. Can people say that about you? Can people say, can people say about you that your words match your lifestyle? Key point number one. Trust is always built on testimony. Trust is always built on testimony. Trust is always built on the, on the maturity of your personal testimony. What's your testimony look like? You know, we discussed this idea a bit when we were discussing Saul's conversion. You remember that? This idea of proving yourself. Remember that? How, how Saul, now Paul, knew... When he, when he accepted Jesus Christ, he knew that he had some proving to do. So in God's strength, he humbled himself, and Paul reinvented his whole life. His whole life. And in so doing, he gained the trust of those that he had previously persecuted. He gained their trust. His testimony backed up who he was. If you want people to trust you, it will require establishing a testimony of love and faithfulness that invites that trust. And some of you have it, and some of you don't. Some of you wonder, you wonder to yourself, why is it I desire so greatly to be a leader? I, I desire so greatly to have influence among my brethren, among my brothers and sisters in Christ. I desire that so greatly, and yet, no one really seems to want to follow me. I know this is particularly, particularly true among some of our young men in this ministry. And you ask yourself, why is that? Well, maybe it's because you have not yet proven your love and faithfulness. And no one's mad at you about that. It's just a matter of fact. And it's time to be about that work so that people can learn to trust you too. Does this make sense? very, very important to understand. Now, verse 18, okay? Now, everyone's celebrating together. This is good, right? Good news here in verse 18. And when they had heard these things, they held their peace. All right? They stopped talking about the shrimp and the pork. Okay? All right, that's no big deal. We see that now. And they glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, I want to point out to you that they didn't say, now we see that the Jews and the Gentiles are equal spiritually in God's eyes. They didn't say that, did they? 
And we're going to run into that trouble again. In fact, for those of you who are with us in Romans, the book of Romans is about addressing this continued issue between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. This continues to be a bit of a problem. All right, but we won't linger there. But here in this moment, they recognize that the Jews are that the Gentiles were granted repentance unto life. Now, after looking at the, this somewhat legalistic, or maybe a better word would be stifled, church in Jerusalem, we're now going to see a group of believers who draw a stark contrast to what we see here. Okay? Now, when I say contrast, you know what I mean by that, right? Contrast, the word contrast, is a difference, right? Uh, some of you may have noticed that this week I, I shaved off a beard. I figured I should probably do that before uh, Alvaro and Malaya's wedding. I, I didn't want to look uh, like a freak, okay? And so I figured the wedding is a good reason, and I'll trim up, I'll shave. Now, some of you thought that that was funny, that Brandon shaved. All right, and for the, for the, the stranger people in Kaya uh, secretly snapped photos of me on Tuesday night. Yeah, that's not creepy. And during the prayer service, I received a series of pictures of me, okay, some of which came from Haley Hudson. Now, uh, fodder, Haley produced fodder for Melissa to make memes of me all week long. Okay, now, now when Haley, Haley texted me, she texted me a photo of me just recently, and then she texted a photo of me from what is, I, I suspect was like 2010. When she was in my class and taking creepy photos of me as her art teacher at the high school. Okay? It was clearly like one of these. Okay? So Haley has pictures of me from like almost a decade ago teaching her. Now, what I noticed with the picture of me now and the picture of me then was a contrast. There was a contrast. When one picture was laid next to the other, I recognized immediately that I've progressively gotten uglier. Okay? And that is what, that is what, when you put two things next to each other, that's what they do. They draw contrasts, don't they? When you lay two things next to each other. And so one, on one hand, at the beginning of chapter 11... We have God has presented us with this narrative about the, the Christians in Jerusalem. And now we're going to be presented with the Christians in Antioch. And we're going to see a bit of a difference. We're going to see a difference. We're going to see a contrast being drawn. And it's going to help us. It's going to help us to better see who we want to be. Verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about, remember we talked about this, Stephen traveled, okay, so after Stephen was stoned, they traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Okay, so let's slow down here for, for a second. We know that after Stephen was stoned, there was a scattering. Okay, we've already talked about this quite a bit, right? The Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they got scared. Okay, and what happened was, after Stephen died, they, they decided to go live somewhere else. All right? And they went all over, right? We talked about the, the Jewish believers, the, the Christians that went to Samaria and to different areas. Okay, all right, now, now here's what we're seeing. Some of them go to Antioch. Okay, now, Antioch was one of the largest metropolitan cities during that time period. Very large and very, very wealthy. It's a place where a lot of the Roman officials would retire to. So after, you know, you know how it goes. Got a good job, make a little cash, right? Invest in a 401k. Time to retire. Head down to Antioch. Yeah? Right, so it was like... It was like somewhere between like a New York City and a Miami Beach, right? Okay? All business and all leisure, all right? Work hard, play hard, yeah? John Phillips' uh, commentary said that the the city had a four-mile main street that was paved with marble, and that it was the first city in the world that ever had street lamps, right? Why do you... Why do you think they'd invent the street lamps, right? Has anybody ever been to the casino? Oh, God. Anybody ever been to, like, Harrah's or something? Have you noticed that at Harrah's, it's day, day all the time? Freaking weird. You're in there, they've got, uh, they've got, like, the sky with clouds painted on the ceiling, and the light is, like, perfectly set. Like, the view, UV lights are perfectly set. So when you're in there, you're convinced it's like 4 in the afternoon, and it's like 3 in the morning. And you're like, here's my money. <laughs> right? So they, they, this is the first city in the world to have street lamps, okay, along this corridor of Marble Street. And that's to promote nightlife, because people are getting down, you know what I'm saying? Okay? And there were, there were also many temples in Antioch devoted to the, to the pantheon of gods that were worshipped by the Greeks. And in these temples was, was sexual sin and drunkenness, because that's how they got down in the pagan temples. Orgies okay, were intended to worship their gods, which was really just an excuse to party hard. And it's said that Antioch was only second to Corinth in terms of its debauchery. And this is the city that these people chose to go to. Pretty interesting. Now, I want to point something out to you. Notice the difference between the traditional Jewish believers and this group that ended up in Antioch. Can we note this for a moment? Verse 19 says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, listen, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Okay, so, so the Jews that were leaving from Jerusalem during the persecution, the Jewish believers that were going to these other places, were going to find other Jewish people to witness to. Okay? Now, in their economy, that seemed reasonable. Okay? In their kingdom of heaven economy, that seemed reasonable. And as we've been seeing through the last few chapters, the Jewish Christians were having a hard time seeing that their responsibilities were to preach the gospel to all that would hear. They were having a hard time seeing that. They were doing what they thought was right, but they failed to see God's heart and His movement. 
Now let's talk about these other believers. Okay, here we have a group of Jewish believers from Cyprus and Cyrene that were not concerned with tradition or cultural norms. They were concerned about souls. They were concerned about souls. Now look, these, these people that were coming out of Cyprus and Cyrene, these Jewish believers, they would have had no knowledge. Hang with me for a second here. They would have had no knowledge of the Ethiopian eunuch. They, they would have had no knowledge of Peter's vision. They would have had no knowledge of Cornelius and the Gentile reception of the gospel. They would have known that. They would have no knowledge of the recent debates that have taken place in Jerusalem. They would have known nothing of that. They simply went to the Gentiles and unabashedly preached. This was a group of mission-minded rule-breakers. They broke the rules. They broke the cultural norms. These believers chose to go against the cultural norms and instead of focusing on what men were doing, focused on what God was doing. They took a radical approach. They took a radical approach. Now, I want to say this. In today's Christian climate, there ain't a whole lot of radical approach. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, look around at the Christians. Look around. Turn your TV on, right? Read about what's going on in contemporary Christianity. I want to say this. Just like in the early church, there are cultural norms today that Christians abide by that ultimately hinder the movement of the gospel. You know it, don't you? American Christianity has become a business with systems and programs and structures concerned first and foremost with butts and pews. How many butts can we get in the pews? It's marketing-based. It's event-based. It's a group of people who are concerned with user experience and positive reviews. Haven't you witnessed that? Some of us have fallen prey to that way of thinking. American Christianity is fearful. We like to make things shiny and palatable with hopes that people will show up on Sunday. Preaching avoids the divisive nature of the gospel and we're unwilling to say the hard things. So we remain silent on many, many matters. We've got pastors who are preaching topically by way of, by way of avoiding passages in Scripture they might prove to send people packing. American Christianity doesn't seek to preach the gospel because they're better off stealing people from other churches than they are win winning souls. They outsource their evangelism to parachurch organizations that fail to make true connections back to the local church. That's what Christianity looks like. So if Kaya 
is going to contrast that, then we must determine that we will have a radical witness that flies in the face of cultural norms and rules. I'm talking about a radical approach. We will preach the gospel to anyone and anywhere. Sue me. Fire me. Kick me out. Friends of Internationals must be an outreach that, that seeks to reach those in our community that others, other Christians I'm talking about, others neglect and ignore. FOI is going to go to them and love them and preach the gospel to them fearlessly. That's what we're going to do. And we will support that work. And it will break the cultural norms. And we will be okay with that. Our Bible studies will be evangelical. They won't be book clubs. They won't be chat circles. They will emphasize the teaching of God's word and the salvation of souls. That's what they'll do. And it will break the cultural norms. We won't be, we won't be reading Beth Moore's recent book, I'm sorry, in our Bible studies. By the way, Beth Moore has recently retracted statements in her books that would offend the homosexual community. Big surprise. Big shocker. Oh, wait. Uh, let's gloss over that. Let's hide what God actually says. Let's cover that up. Let's gloss it over. Let's make it shiny. Let's put some, let's put some lipstick on that pig and, and see if it keeps me selling books or not. Kyle will need to be a ministry that goes into classrooms and into workspaces and into neighborhoods, places that are deemed by other Christians off li limits. And we will preach the gospel. We will be a ministry that relies on prayer not practice or strategy. We'll rely on prayer so that the gospel will go to places that we could never take it otherwise. Key point number two. To effectively preach the gospel, we will need to, to break from the expectations of cultural Christianity. I hope you're hearing me on this because what I just got done saying for some of you was very, very divisive. It was hard for you to hear. But we're going to stick to the book and we're going to move in the way that the Spirit moves. And people, other Christians, who are complacent in their faith and afraid, don't have to join us. But there are people and dying and they're going to hell. And I want to reach them. And in order to do so, we have to preach the gospel. And along the way, we're going to break from cultural Christianity. We will need a radical approach. Are you guys with me in that? I mean, I can't tell. I don't know. Like, I mean, maybe you're gut checked right now. Okay? But listen to me. Are you with me in that? We're going to look different than other Christians, and people are going to be pissed about it. And they're going to tell us we're doing it wrong. They're going to tell us we're doing it wrong. 
And some of them will be our family members. And some of them will be our friends. And we have to lovingly say to them, but God. So the early church in Antioch, this this fledgling church in Antioch, the first thing we notice about them is that they're radical in their approach. The next thing that we notice about them is that they have the right leaders. They have the right leaders. Verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And praise God for this. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. So Jerusalem caught word of what was going on in Antioch and having determined at some level that they were going to help the Gentiles, the the poor little Gentiles that had gotten saved, they were going to help grow their faith, they sent one of their very, very best, Barnabas. They sent Barnabas to encourage and strengthen the new believers in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was blessed to have him. Barnabas' name means son of rest. Son of rest. And that's what he did. He brought rest to the people. He was the right leader for the job. And he had the character qualities that you want in a spiritual father, in a pastor. These are, these are the qualities that you want to see in the pastorate. Now note what it says when, when, he, when he came. He saw the grace of God and was glad. We're going to focus on that here in a second, but I want to point out to you, key point, I believe it's number three. Are we on number three? To effectively live the gospel, we will need leaders who strengthen our faith. The church in Antioch needed a leader who would strengthen their faith, who would build them up, encourage them, and provoke them to righteousness. Okay? And that's who Barnabas was. And we're going to look at his leadership, and we're going to look at who he was, we're going to look at his character real quick. And the first thing that we note is that Barnabas was full of gladness. It says, when when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. You know, he didn't see the hurdles they faced. There certainly was some, don't you think? He didn't focus on that. He didn't see the difficulty of the task at hand. He wasn't pessimistic or cynical in any way, unlike the Jewish believers that we just saw who were pessimistic as it concerned Peter and Cornelius. Yeah? You seeing the contrast there? Okay. What he saw, what he chose to focus on was the grace of God. I see the grace of God here. And for that he was glad. He was full of gladness because he focused on what God was doing above anything else. Is that how you see people and things? Is that how you see your circumstances? Or are you a pessimist? Are you cynical? Some of you, some of you hide behind cynicism and you say, well, I'm a realist. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> now listen to me. I'm asking. Because what we need our, our leaders in Kaya to be, I'm asking, are you full of gladness and hope and optimism Because in a dark place, you can see the light 
more than you focus on that dark place. Right? You see the light above all things. You see grace. You see the hand of grace, the thread of grace moving throughout circumstances and situations. And when things seem hopeless, you're not hopeless. Yeah? That's who Barnabas was. And leaders that mope about and are, are, are melancholy, they, confe- they convey a false hopelessness. We always hear about false hope, don't we? But when a leader, a follower of Jesus Christ, is melancholy and lives that way, that's a false hopelessness. Why? Because with God, there is always a reason to be glad. I mean, some of you guys are leaders in this ministry, and you're always talking about what God isn't going to do. And you're always focusing on the things that you don't think are going to happen. And you're always worried. Freaking worry warts. And guess what? That, that worry... you perpetrate that against the people that follow you and they become like you, culturally. There's no room for that in leadership. Not here. We need leaders in ministry that are going to reflect joy. And that's that's super important. Are you guys hearing me on that? We need leaders that are going to reflect joy. Next we see in Barnabas, we see his purpose. It says, And he exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Barnabas also recognized that he was there for a purpose. And that purpose was to instill in them the following. You need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ above anything else. That was his message. When he thought about the investment that he needed to make in these believers in Antioch, he wasn't like, okay, we need a game plan. All right? All right, I'm going to get people together, and we're going to create a strategy. Right? Now, the first thing he did is he recognized that he needed to encourage them to purpose in their hearts to have intimacy with Christ, to have relationship with Christ. This word cleave here, means to lay hold on. He wanted them to lay hold on Christ. That was his encouragement. That was his exhortation. You know, as a pastor, I find myself in counseling situations all the time, right? All the time. I'm always counseling people. I'm sitting down. You know what? I've gotten good at understanding biblical principles. And a lot of the times when I sit down with people, guess what? I've got advice for them. You would hope that I would, you know? I mean, sometimes I'm absolutely clueless. I'm like, I don't even know. I don't want to say that. But you know what? A lot of the time I have good advice. You know what? I am in danger as a counselor of giving good advice to the neglect of or the priority to. Hey, you know what you need? You need to know Jesus. I might present some great piece of advice. Maybe it's even biblically principled. And I might give that, and it would be a shame if I let that person walk away. And I didn't remind them that the thing that fixes every other thing is an intimate and personal and loving relationship with God in His book and through prayer. That fixes stuff. And every one of our leaders in this ministry have to prioritize the message that sounds like, you know what you need? 
You need to cleave to Jesus Christ. That is the one piece of advice that we all should be giving all of the time. And if you give advice to the neglect of that advice, well, then you've got your priorities wrong. Every good pastor will make his primary purpose to call people to a deeper walk with Jesus, to call people to discipleship. The call of Pastor Barnabas was the very call of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That was Jesus' advice. That should be our advice. That should be Barnabas' advice. If we're going to be leaders, what we should be doing is asking people to follow Jesus Christ. That's our primary call. Next, we see in Barnabas' character that he was a good man. He was a good man. The, the word good here refers to upright character. Am I, losing, am I losing you guys? You guys with me? I need like five minutes. Okay, this is super important. We can't let this get away from us. It refers to upright character. In other words, his character had an impact on those he led. He had a testimony that supported the things that he spoke. There are too many church leaders whose life on the street looks different than their life in the pulpit. There are too many Christians who when they're at home, they live a life that's different than the one than when they're at church. There's too many of those. Too many men and women of low character. John chapter 18, verse 20 says, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. This is Jesus giving a response to his accusers. I, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whether the, Jews all, uh, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret, I've said nothing. Okay, now listen. Don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying that everything that I was in open is what I was in quiet. And there was nothing that I was hiding in a secret place. Everything that I ever was, I was in person, in public, among other people. That's Jesus' testimony. Goodness is measured by the seamlessness of upright character. Let me say that again. Goodness, the testimony of goodness, is measured by the seamlessness of upright character in your life. Everywhere you go, in secret or in public, you are the same. For the church in Antioch, they didn't just need a preacher. They needed an example. They needed an example. And I want to point something out to you that's very important, important here. Goodness is not born by accident. It doesn't happen to you at a certain age. It isn't the byproduct of being full of, 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 of knowledge or experience. No, listen to me. Goodness is the byproduct of being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It says in verse 24, He was a good man 
and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. The Word of God ties each of these qualities together like a chain, doesn't it? He is good. And he's yielded to the Spirit of God. And he believes God at his very word. He believes it. He's full of faith. And he's filled or yielded or surrendered to the Spirit of God in his life. In other words, there's not compartmentalization in his life. He doesn't have one aspect of his life that he's given to God and other aspects of his, of his life that he's hidden from God. He's given it all over. He's surrendered to the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he believes the word of God. And this is what has, has created a good man. These aspects of Barnabas are inseparable. You might say to yourself, I want to be a person of high character. I want to live a life that can be an example to others. Well, that can't happen unless you've yielded your body and your life to the control of God's Spirit. And you can't do that unless you first decided that you're going to believe God at His Word and at His promises. That has to happen. Faith, full of the Spirit, goodness. Inseparable, inseparable character qualities. And then finally what we see is that there was fruit in his life. Antioch was a fruitful place before Barnabas arrived on the scene, wasn't seen, wasn't it? It was already fruitful when he got there. Things were happening. But what we see here is that God used his surrender and used his leadership to extend the gospel message to bear fruit in places and with people that it wasn't previously doing. See, it says, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Now look, what's the, what's the punctuation there? It's a colon, isn't it? And then it says, and much people was added unto the Lord. In other words, his character had a direct and immediate impact on the freedom of the gospel and the reception of salvation for other people. Are you a hindrance to the gospel? Or are you a conduit for the gospel? Does your leadership display these character qualities? Or, like, like what we saw previously in the Jewish church, are you a hindrance in some way? So, this model church, so far, two, two things that we've seen. First of all, they have a radical approach to the gospel. And for really, that for us, that should challenge us in our convictions. Are we taking a radical approach? Are we being, letting God use us to think creatively about where to go and who to speak to? Are we afraid of living in God's will? Or are we free and liberated to live God's will? Kaya needs a radical approach to the gospel, friends. If we get real comfortable with this Bible study thing, if we get real comfortable with FOI, if that gets easy at any level, we're doing it wrong. It should never be easy if it's radical. The other thing that we see is we, we see that, that the ministry needed right leaders, people with the right character qualities, people that focused on the right things. That's what the ministry needed. And we come back Together, again, we're going to talk about reliable teachers. 
We're going to talk about realistic counsel. We'll talk about those things next time. But before we leave, I want to invite the worship team up. And I want to ask, okay, listen to me. We're not, we're not gone until we've worshipped and we've, we've asked hard questions of ourselves. Are you, are you ready to do that? Yes. Okay, so, so here's, the, here's the question that we're going to pose from God's Word today. Are there anything, is there anything in your life, maybe it's legalism, maybe it's some sort of perception that you have about your faith. Is there anything in your life that's getting in the way of God using you to reach the nations? And as we dismiss in worship, we're going to pray through that. If you need to grab someone, do that. If you need to come up and meet with a counselor or a leader, come do that. I love you guys very, very much. Very much, I love you. And I would hate that, if we, that we, we left anything on the table that God would have for us. Don't leave anything on the table. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the example that he sets. Lord, we thank you for those in the early church who conformed their, th- themselves to the image of Jesus Christ and they were set free to go and to do things that they had never ever seen people do before. They were open to the Great Commission. They were willing to go to all the nations and to preach the gospel. And Lord, we need that, we need that level of radicality. We can't just conform to what we see other Christians doing. It's so easy to be a Christian in this world. It's so easy. And you never intended it that it, would, that it would be that way. You promised us suffering. And so, Lord, I, I want to model myself after what's right. And I pray that this ministry would be built the same way. God, make us radical. And, and, and Lord, I also ask that you would make us right in our leadership. We've got leaders in this room. We've got many, many leaders. We've got growing leaders. And we could do it wrong. And we can stifle what you're doing. Our pessimism, our cynicism, our doubtfulness, our bad counsel can stifle the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that wouldn't be true. Help us, Lord. Teach us. In your Son's name, amen.